right, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verse 15. As our study through the Gospel of Matthew has brought us to this passage. Matthew chapter 12, verse 15. If you're using the, the black Bibles that are provided by the church, I'll give you the page number in just a second. It would be page um, 817. Last week in our study at the beginning of Matthew 12, we saw that the Pharisees confronted Jesus because he was not following their traditions concerning Sabbath regulations. But Jesus showed that it was in fact the Pharisees who were in error by, placing, by them placing all these burdensome regulations on the people, the Pharisees had missed God's heart for the Sabbath, and they had elevated their traditions to the level of God's word. And as if, if that wasn't bad enough, that Jesus also pointed out that the Pharisees had failed to recognize the uniqueness and the authority of who Jesus is. The, and, you know, they had witnessed Jesus' teaching with authority, him healing, him casting out demons, him, him doing lots of mighty works, and yet they refused to accept that he was the promised Messiah, the, the, the promised king sent from God. But Jesus, once again, in this confrontation, declared to them, uh, if they had ears to hear, that he is the Christ. He is David's greater son. He is unique. He has authority. He's, he even explicitly said that he is greater than the temple, that he is Lord of the Sabbath. And by saying those things, Jesus was placing himself squarely in the place of God. <laughs> he was claiming things that only God could claim. And so once again, this was an opportunity for the Pharisees to, to repent and to say, Wow, Jesus, we were wrong about you. Please forgive us. We, we see that you are the Messiah. You are God's son. But yet, they didn't do that. They, they did not repent of their unbelief. Instead, they doubled down on their rejection of Jesus. That's what we saw in the, in the very last verse there in verse 14, that they, they uh, were plotting how they could destroy Jesus. Right? And that's where we left off. And so now that brings us to verse 15, which is our text today, verses 15 through 21. So would you stand, please, again, in honor of God's word and just follow along in your copy of the scriptures as I, as I read. Matthew 12, 15. Jesus, aware of this, in other words, aware of their, the Pharisees plotting to destroy him, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. As we begin, I want to ask you a question. Actually, a couple of questions, kind of rapid fire here. What captivates your heart? What do you daydream about? 
not only what do you dream about, but what do you pursue? What are you passionate about? What are you pursuing? It's important to really honestly answer those questions, and I want to tell you why. The answer to those questions, number one, is an indicator of your spiritual health. What captivates your heart is, is, is like a window into the, the health of your soul. So whatever you answered, you know, when you say, well, this is what I daydream about, this is what I pursue, that shows who's on the throne of your heart, who or what, right? So that's the first thing. It's an, it's an indicator of our spiritual health. But then secondly... Kind of, it kind of goes both directions here, right? Not only does it reveal what's inward about your heart, but then what we pursue, the Bible says, actually shapes or affects the condition of our heart. You understand that? What you pursue actually shapes, affects the, the health of your soul. Psalm 115.8, Psalm 135.18 both say the same thing. It's in the context of idolatry, and it says those who make idols or those who put their trust in idols become like them. So that's kind of the negative example, right? In other words, if we pursue the things of this world, idols, right, we will increasingly become like the world. If we pursue the things of the world, we will increasingly become like the world. But then the converse is also true. Right? If we daily focus our hearts on Christ, the Bible says we will be transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. 2 Corinthians 3.18. So, we need Christ to captivate our hearts. And that's the title of the sermon this morning. Captivated by Christ. In our text that we just read today, God through the pen of Matthew, it's like he shines a spotlight on the glory of Jesus Christ. God wants us to see and be in awe of who Jesus is and what he's doing, even as he carries out his ministry. And so today, as we study this passage, I pray that that God will, in fact, captivate our hearts with Christ. I pray that he will open our eyes to see Christ's beauty, to see Christ's majesty, And then I pray that God will give us grace to cast away any idols of our heart so that Jesus Christ alone will have the first place of our affections and of our pursuits. All right, so that's my prayer. That's where we're headed today. So today from this passage and specifically from verses 17 through 21, we want to consider three things about Jesus, his position, his person, and his power. Okay, so that would kind of be our simple outline. But first, let me just let us notice the context here in verses 15 and 16. So look again with me, please, at Matthew 12, 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And so that, that flows right out of verse 14, right, the situation there. Jesus knows that the Pharisees are plotting to destroy him. So what does he do? He withdraws from the situation. Isn't that interesting, right? You know, we, we, like a, we like a fighter, right? That's, you know, how many people like Donald Trump? Oh, he stands up to everybody, right? Well, that wasn't really Jesus' MO. No, he, he, he's not looking for a fight. He knows his hour has not yet come. 
right? Later in Jerusalem, when, it, when it, it is time for him to lay down his life in the place of his people, then absolutely he will stand there and with, with authority and power and, and faithfulness. But right now here in Matthew 12, the time has not come. And so Jesus knows he has more ministry to do in other places, so he withdraws. Then verse 15 continues, And many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. So like we've seen before throughout our study of Matthew, Jesus went about proclaiming the good news that the kingdom of God had come, and he demonstrated that truth by powerfully healing those who were sick or or demon-possessed. And that was showing that he is the promised king who is bringing in the long-awaited kingdom of God. And of course, then, when people were healed, right, they were super pumped about it. They wanted to just go tell everybody about it. But Jesus consistently, we've seen, has said, no, 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 don't do that, right? I don't want you to go, and and I want you to kind of keep this on the down low for now, right? And because Jesus didn't, he he knew that undue publicity would hinder his ministry, Right? The crowds would, would misunderstand his ministry. It, it, they would, the crowds would start thinking, Jesus is just a miracle worker. Or that Jesus is some political leader who's going to overthrow Rome. Right? I mean, the crowds were prone to those assumptions. And so Jesus doesn't want to pour fuel on that. No, he, he had come, in fact, to save his people from their sins by laying down his life. So he once again says, hey, don't, don't make me known that way. So in these two characteristics, <laughs> withdrawal from conflict and desire for secrecy about his miracles, two things that you and I would probably just kind of read over and say, okay, yeah, I get it, you know, but no big deal. But to Matthew, led by the Holy Spirit, of course, right? To Matthew, when he sees Jesus doing those things or as he records Jesus doing those things, it's, to him, it's, it's like a, It's like a flashing neon sign. Jesus is the promised servant of the Lord. And that's why, as Matthew has done already and likes to do, he leads right into a, I don't know what the technical name is, but a a quote showing how Jesus fulfills Old Testament scripture. Right? That's what he says in verse 17. This, this, right, the fact that he withdrew, the fact that he kept uh, things secret, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then he goes into this long quote, which is from Isaiah 42, which, which Bruce began our service with today. Remember, Matthew was a Jewish Christian, right? And he's writing primarily to his fellow Jews, to people who knew the Old Testament Scriptures had been raised with them. And so any chance he gets, he wants to show how Jesus fulfills the promises, how he is the promised Messiah, and, and how he fulfills the different covenants and types and shadows that the Old Testament pointed toward. So let's, again, look at verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, verse 18. Behold, here, here's the quote, right, from Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will pro- proclaim justice to the Gentiles. I'll stop there because we're going to work our way through, through this quote. But this leads us to our first heading. Remember I said there were three things we want to consider about Jesus. Number one, his position. So Matthew is once again showing that Jesus is the promised Messiah, right? He's, he, he labors to do that often. 
But this time he's doing that specifically by showing that Jesus is the promised servant of the Lord that the prophet Isaiah spoke of. And so some of you may be familiar with that and some may not. But Isaiah, you know, is one one of the major prophets. um, And it contains four passages that are called servant songs. Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 53. And in these passages, they talk about this coming servant of the Lord. Okay? And that was a a very important um, figure for the Jews. And to understand the importance of that figure, let's back up and say all the way to the beginning, why did God create people? Right? God created humanity to, to know him, to bring glory to him, to serve him, right? To image him, to, to represent his, his glory and his attributes through serving him as well, right? So Adam and Eve were called to be servants of the Lord. They were called to image God. They were called to reflect him in the world. But of course, sadly, they failed at that, right? They failed to image God properly. They, they gave in to the, they were deceived, they gave in to temptation to sin. And so ever since then, God has been redeeming mankind, right? Seeking to, to rescue a remnant of people to still serve him, to still uh, properly or increasingly image him, right? And so that kind of takes us through the timeline of Scripture. We get to the covenants that he made with the nation of Israel. God in his grace set apart the nation of Israel. They were to be a nation who would serve him. They were to be a nation who would represent him in the world. And, and there's other places in, in the book of Isaiah, which is written primarily to, to Israel, or pri- specifically to the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, where Israel is called the servant of the Lord. Because they were to, to represent God to the other nations. Other, the other nations, the pagan nations, should look at Israel, look at Judah, and, and, and learn something about God. Wow, there is one true God, and he is powerful, he is, he is loving, he is forgiving, he is faithful, he's holy, right? So they were to be servants of the Lord who imaged God that way, but of course Israel failed to do that. They weren't faithful, they, they weren't holy, they, weren't, they didn't show that God was the one true living God because they chased after the idols of the nations, the false gods, Right? And so it's in that context, and, and Isaiah is written in the context of, of coming judgment upon the people of God, upon Judah, because of their unfaithfulness. But it's in that context that the, God, through the prophet Isaiah, starts speaking about a, there is going to be a servant who properly um, reflects my glory. There is coming a, a servant of the Lord who will image me to to the world, who will be faithful, who will proclaim justice, who will show everyone that I am the one true living God. And that's this promised servant of the Lord that Isaiah speaks about, right? And, and as through the unfolding of, of Scripture and, and as, as people followed God, they became, it, it became evident that this coming servant of the Lord is this promised Messiah, David's son, who would reign forever. Okay, so that's, the Jews were, were longing for that. They were looking for that. And Matthew says, guys, I want you to know Jesus is, is him. Jesus of Nazareth is this promised servant of the Lord. 
And the New Testament's clear about that. Not only Matthew, but the other apostles all declare that Jesus is God's perfect servant. That those servant songs written 700 years before Christ were talking about him. And so as we think about his position, just understand what a big deal this was. This is the promised servant of God. And so I I broke that down even further, and I'll just go through those quickly. Jesus was promised by God, the servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. These songs were written 700 years before he would come. And yet, here he is. Matthew's saying he's here. The long-awaited servant of the Lord, the long-awaited Messiah is here. And, of course, we know those promises go back even further than Isaiah, don't they? They go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. When, right when Adam and Eve sinned, even as God is, is handing out the, the, the consequences for that sin, he promises that, that there will be a seed from the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And then from there, you've just got one covenant promise after another. You've got one uh, picture after another through the sacrificial systems and the festivals and all that. All these pictures and promises and all pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as, Jesus, as we've seen in the study of Matthew, Jesus says, those scriptures were all talking about me. I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. Remember he said in the Sermon on the Mount. So all those promises find their fulfillment in Christ. As Paul says, they all find their yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's promised by God. He's chosen by God. Now we get into our text here, right? All that was kind of, we see that just as through the introduction of this quote. Behold my servant, the promised servant of the Lord, verse 18. He says, whom I have chosen. This is Yahweh. This is God the Father speaking, right? Yahweh is, God exists in Father, Son, and Spirit. But in the context of Isaiah, this is like God the Father saying, my servant whom I've chosen. Notice that close relationship. He says, this is my servant. This is my chosen one. This is whom I've appointed. I've chosen him because I love him, we're going to see. So he's promised by God. He's chosen by God. He's loved by God because he says, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. When, When do we see the father declaring his love for Jesus during Jesus's ministry? When do we when do we see that? As baptism, right? We've seen that already. Matthew chapter 3. Remember what happened when, when Jesus was baptized? Voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love. Right? And then later we're going to see the, the same thing. Um, I think it's Matthew 17 in the transfiguration. A voice from heaven to the, the three apostles there. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Wow, the father declaring that he loves the son, that he's well pleased with the son. Because the son was obeying him. The son was fulfilling what he had been called to do and commissioned to do. Think about the eternal son of God willingly left glory, left the glories of heaven, left perfect fellowship with father and spirit in order to humble himself and become a man to take on human nature, to live in the, in the chaos of this fallen world. And then, again, that happened, that statement from heaven came, happened at Jesus' baptism, right? When he was about 30 years old, he had lived this, uh, a perfect, obedient life under God's law, and now the time had come for him to go public with his ministry. And, and the voice came from heaven, uh, just like, 
encouraging him, affirming him, uh, declaring to those around, this is my beloved son. He is faithfully completing the task that he's been given to do. And now he's, he's, he's ready to go forward. He's ready to go and proclaim the good news. He's ready to go and die on the cross. And so we'll see that then at the transfiguration. As the cross gets nearer, Jesus again gives this voice from heaven to encourage the son, but also to help the apostles understand, hey, Jesus is not bringing in the finished kingdom right now, right? This is not all uh, domination and glory. This is going to be suffering and death. That's how he's delivering his people. And then even on the cross, while, while the father is forsaking the son, right? This is kind of the, the, the thing that's hard to wrap your mind around about the cross. On the cross, the, the, the father is pouring out his wrath on his beloved son, on his innocent son. Why? Because the son is bearing the sin and guilt of his people. And even while the father is doing that, at the same time, we know he's well pleased with the son, because the son was being obedient even to the point of death, Paul says, Philippians 2. Death on a cross. And the father showed his delight. He showed how pleased and proud he was of his son by raising him from the dead. By exalting him to the place of ultimate authority and honor. To show everyone, yes, this is my son. He was not an imposter. He is who he claimed to be. He is the the eternal son of God. He is the promised king. He has faithfully completed his mission of redemption. And now um, I'm raising him from the dead. I've accepted his payment. He's made full atonement for the sins of all who believe. And so I'm raising him from the dead and exalting him to the highest place. And that's where Jesus is now. At the Father's right hand, ruling and building his kingdom through his spirit. So, in this quote, we see that Jesus is is promised by God, he's chosen by God, he's loved by God, and then he's anointed by God. Back to verse 18 there, the middle part. He says, I will put my spirit upon him. The Old Testament teaches that God will place his spirit upon his chosen servant, the Messiah. Speaking of Isaiah, there's several places in Isaiah that talk about that. As it talks about the Messiah, one of the continuing characteristics of the Messiah, of this promised king, is that the, the Lord's Spirit will be upon him. Isaiah 11.2 says that, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. We see it here in our text, Isaiah 42. I put my Spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah 61, the very passage that Jesus reads in the synagogue there in his hometown of Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And then he goes on and talks about his ministry, what he's been sent to do. And so why that's significant is because in the Old Testament, whenever someone was commissioned to become a prophet or to become a priest or to become a king, guess how that commission was was, uh, marked? They were anointed, right? They were anointed with, with oil, olive oil, right? Um, Samuel does that to Saul. Samuel does that to David. And that was kind of symbolic saying, hey, the Lord has set this person apart, right? The Lord has commissioned this, this person to that task. And so Jesus, <laughs> at his baptism again, right? The voice from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love, 
the Spirit of God descends upon him like a dove. And so at Jesus' baptism, he's anointed not with olive oil, but with the Holy Spirit himself. Spirit comes down and rests on Jesus, anointing him, commissioning him to his office of Messiah. Remember, that was at the beginning of his public ministry. And so it was um, visibly setting him apart, equipping him, commissioning him to begin his messianic mission. So that's his position. He's the promised Messiah. He's the promised servant of the Lord. Think of all the people who had failed to serve the Lord properly, and yet there's this one who will be faithful, who will, who will be compassionate and, and bring justice. And Matthew's saying, he's here. He's here. This Jesus is, he, is him. And that leads to his person, secondly. His position Now we want to look at his person. Lots of things we could say about Jesus, right? Talking about his love and his patience, and and, and certainly we'll we'll reference those things. But look at verse 19, the characteristics that, that Matthew and Isaiah draw us to. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Right? So there was, again, what the Spirit used to prompt Matthew to say, Jesus is fulfilling this, right? He's not quarreling with the, with the Pharisees. He's, you know, I mean, he could wrap circles around them, right, with his, his, his intellect and his knowledge of the law, and, and he does that from time to time. But he wasn't, that wasn't the time to do that. He's not quarreling. He's not self-promoting. No, he's, he's, he's actually being very discreet and quiet. He's caring about his business. He's not letting other people define his ministry. He's defining his ministry. But then look at verse 20. This is the verse we want to hone in on right now. Talking about his person, his character. He's humble, right? We see that from 19. He's humble. I mean, the Bible talks a lot about that, doesn't it? Philippians 2. He humbled himself to leave heaven, to become a man, to become a servant. Not just any man. He didn't come down as, an, as a king who, who was paraded and who was worshipped and all that, like an earth, earthly king. He is the king. No, he came as a humble babe born to poor parents and lived as a servant, washing his disciples' feet, dying on a cross. So he's humble. And then verse 20, he's gentle. He's gentle. Verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Two pictures that would have made instant sense to the original hearers, right? But that we need a little probably um, work to understand. Okay, well, you know what reeds are, right? And uh, a, a reed, you know, was used for different things. But if it got cracked or, or was, you know, partially broken, right? You know, people would say, well, this reed's not good for anything, right? It's kind of hanging there limp. It's damaged. It's, you know, let's just get rid of it, right? It's, it's no good for nothing. Likewise, the wicks that were used in their lamps, once that wick got to be faulty, rather than just giving out good light, what would it do? It would, it would smolder. It would smoke. It would, you know, you know, let now the, now the air is smoky, now it's not giving off good light, and so people would say, man, these things are a dime a dozen. I'm just going to get rid of those too. Both these things are cheap, reeds and wicks. And if they don't work, let's just pitch them. 
right? Let's just kind of, if it's, if it's smoldering, if it's kind of sputtering, let's just put it out of its misery, right? But that's not what Jesus does with us. That's not how Jesus carries out his ministry. No, Jesus is gentle. A bruised reed he does not break. A burning wick he does not quench. Jesus comes to us in our sin and weakness. And rather than snuff us out, he graciously saves us. He strengthens us. He sustains and strengthens our faith. Think of how this this characteristic, this quality of Jesus manifests itself in in his ministry. How many times do we see, and that's, we saw it in our scripture reading today, right? How many times do we see people coming to him, knowing there's something special about him, not understanding everything about him yet, but just knowing that they're in need and they come to him and, and others are like, oh, what are you doing? You're not following all our rules. You're a sinful person. You're, you know, get out of here, right? That's what the Pharisees want to do. They want to snuff out a, a, a wick that was kind of sputtering and smoking and smoldering. No, they're like, we don't need this. Get out of here. No, Jesus doesn't do that. He says, come, right? And he draws out people's faith. He, he comforts them. He touches them. He assures them. He shows them his love and his compassion. You know, think about the woman that um, in the crowd who had been bleeding for, what was it, 12 years, I think. And um, you know, she tries to even come secretly, you know, and, and you know, think, oh, I'll just I can just touch him, right? Jesus stops, even though he's right in the middle of, of, you know, going to an urgent situation. And he calls out, hey, who touched me? Why does he do that? To draw out her faith, to strengthen her faith, right? She was healed, but she needs to know who he, who he truly is. Not just a prophet, he's more than a prophet. Not just a healer, he's more than a healer. He's the eternal son of God. He's the, the savior and king. And so time and time again, Jesus does this. He's gentle toward those whose repentance is weak and whose faith is small. Okay? Jesus is gentle toward those whose faith is weak, or repentance is weak and faith is small. We, we need those. That's how we come to, to, to Christ. By God's grace, we repent and believe. But Jesus... The Bible says if, if, there's, if there's anything in you that believes, if there's anything in you that is drawn to Jesus, then come. Come. Don't stay away. Come near and let, let Jesus fill in the gaps for you. Let Jesus strengthen your faith. And so it, I know people come from all kinds of different experiences. When Melissa and I were hiking up in Glacier National Park, uh, last week, we met um, a young woman um, who was from Poland. And I, you know, was trying to bring the conversation around to, to Christ. And, uh, you know, I asked her about her upbringing and the church there in Poland. And, I mean, you could tell she had not had a pleasant experience with the church. Because, you know, it had been part of her education. And, and I mean, when she thought church, she was thinking broadly. It sounded like she was talking about priests and Catholicism and things. And so we tried to distinguish, I tried to distinguish ourselves. And say, well, we're Protestant. Uh, but, you know, and I mean, again, I, I don't know everything that 
was in her heart, but I think she had seen harshness, and I think she had seen hypocrisy. She had seen greed and pride and power grabs. And a lot of people have had bad experiences, right? Because God convicts us of our sin, and, and so, you know, sometimes people have had those kinds of experiences at church, like where, where the church, and I was talking about this last week, right, where we're, the church acts like a bunch of Pharisees, Right, who are holier than thou, who have it all together. And, and this notion gets, well, I've got to get it all together before I can even really come to Christ. Right? I can't be authentic. I can't be transparent and express my struggles and my sin. And I want, you to, tell you, that's, I want to tell you, that's not the heart of the, of the Savior. That's not the heart of Christ. That's not the heart of the gospel. Right? The gospel says, no, you come with your sin. Recognize you're a sinner who needs a Savior, and recognize that Jesus is that Savior, and you come. You come, you come with, with weak faith, and come into the arms of Jesus, and He's going to help you and strengthen you. He's going to give you new life in, in Christ, fill you with the Holy Spirit, and He's going to teach you and be your shepherd and guide you and lead you. Now, don't get me wrong, it is... It is it is uh, repenting. It is coming to Jesus as Lord, right? It's, it's not trying to just get the benefits but still live life for yourself. That's not the gospel either. No, it's coming to him and saying, I know you are Lord. I want to follow you, but I know I'm going to mess up a lot. And Jesus says, all right, let's do it. I'm going to shepherd you, right? And I'm providing means of grace for you. You have my spirit, you have the word, you have the church. Let's, let's walk this journey. So I say all that, I kind of lingered there because, again, there might be some here today who have stayed away from Jesus because of bad experiences. And I would just urge you to come. Come to Christ. He is a gentle, humble, and compassionate Savior. He's a loving Savior. He's demonstrated His love by laying down His life in the place of sinners. By, by perfectly uh, fulfilling the law, earning the, the righteousness that we needed, but then yet dying under the penalty of the law. And He's, he's, he's good and compassionate. So come to Him. So in doing this, and bringing this quote to us from Isaiah... Matthew is really reminding us of what Jesus had just said about himself in Matthew chapter 11, right? Remember how that ended? Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so you see this, this contrast between Jesus and the Pharisees, don't you? Pharisees give all these burdens of, of all their, their, their uh, human traditions, all their self-righteousness, and all their unloving attitude. And Jesus says, I'm not like that. I'm gentle and lowly. I'm a, I'm a good king. So come follow me. So that's his person. And thirdly and finally, we want to consider his power. We've seen his position, we've seen his person. Now, thirdly, we want to consider his power. And by that, I'm, 
I mean, I'm talking about a lot of things. I'm talking about his saving power, his influence, how he's saving people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Look again at verse 18. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud. We considered that. Verse 20, a bruised reed. He will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. Here it is again. Until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. So there twice we have justice. And justice is talked about a lot in the the servant songs of Isaiah. And when we think of justice, we think of the judicial system, right? But our judicial system is very limited, right? Think about how, how can our judicial system right wrongs? Well, it can right wrongs by punishing the wicked, right? And it's supposed to do that. It can right the wrongs by clearing the innocent, Right? And it's supposed to do that. But the, our judicial system is very limited, right? It doesn't have the power to totally put everything back together. It doesn't have the power to take everything that was hurt and broken and make it whole again, right? Our judicial system can't do that. But Jesus can. Jesus can. He brings true justice, He restores everything that sin has broken, right? And we're still waiting for that total final restoration, aren't we? But all, we have the already of that. We have the down payment of that. We have that, that the Holy Spirit. We have the, the uh, new life. We have the being raised with Christ, set free from bondage to sin. The, the image of God is from one degree of glory to another being restored in us to where we can increasingly reflect the glory of God. We've been reconciled to our God, to our Creator, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so that Matthew is saying, through, through Isaiah's prophecy, Jesus, God's chosen servant, has come. And through His life, death, and resurrection, He reconciles us to our Creator. He brings sinners like us into a loving relationship with God. He indwells us by His Spirit. He gives us new life. He brings justice. He restores what sin has broken. He restores this most fundamental relationship between us and God. And then he also starts to restore other human relationships between husband and wife. A marriage that's been just wrought with selfishness and and, and, and anger. And right, Jesus starts to restore that as the husband and wife both seek to follow him, as they gaze upon him and his spirit begins to produce the fruit of the spirit in their lives, that relationship starts to be restored along with other human relationships. And of course, Jesus is is going to ultimately restore everything that sin has broken. That's what Paul talks about in Colossians 1.20. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Again, what does sin do? Sin distorts the truth about God's reign, the truth about God's uniqueness. Sin makes it look like other gods are legitimate, right? But Jesus is that perfect servant of God who says, no, there's only one true God, the maker of heaven and earth, Father, Son, and Spirit. So Jesus comes and defeats sin and death. He defeats the evil powers. He exposes the gods of this world as false. His redemptive work shows that the Lord alone is sovereign. And so that's his mission that he's carrying out now through his church, through the gospel, through his spirit, 
right? When Jesus was at the Father's right hand, he sent the promised spirit, Acts 2, to come and indwell his, his people. And now as his church worships him and as they proclaim the good news, the spirit of God goes forth and continues to restore people to God. So Jesus brings justice. He makes right what was wrong. He restores our relationship with God by paying for our sins, setting us free from bondage, and delivering us from the domain of darkness and placing us in his kingdom. And notice twice in this passage, it says Gentiles, doesn't it? Say, well, Jathan, I thought you said Matthew was written primarily to Jews. Well, it is, really, right? I mean, he was writing to his his kindred brethren there, his Jewish brethren. And Matthew, more than any other gospel writer, continues to emphasize, hey guys, you know what? Jesus is not just Savior for the Jewish people. (laughs) No, this promised king is Savior for all nations. All nations. So notice the scope of Christ's mission. It's worldwide. He's going to save people from every nation. He's going to establish a covenant between them and God, restoring that relationship And so today, as the gospel goes forth, even now, even as we prayed, Jesus is delivering people from all over this world, from all types of false religion, from all types of bondage, from all kinds of sin and worldly philosophies, from all types of pride and self-righteousness. Jesus is saving people, and God is being glorified through his obedient servant of the Lord. So this last... Um, heading his power. Notice I, I was thinking about his influence. How wide is the influence of Christ? Right, isn't that kind of the buzzword today with social media, right? Oh, that person's a social media influencer, you know? They have, you know, five million followers. Big deal, right? What are they influencing people about? Oh, well, you know, you should dress like this, or you should do this, or, or, or you should have this political stance. I want to tell you, Christ influences way more people for a lot more important things. He influences people by turning their hearts back to the living God, restoring that relationship with their Creator, and saving them for all eternity. And so I say all that to say, and again, this is kind of the thrust of the message as we wrap up here. Loved ones, let us be in awe of Christ. Let us be in awe of Christ. All over this world, Jesus is reconciling people back to their creator. Remember, the book of Revelation describes a multitude that no man can number, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb people who have been saved from their sins and who will enjoy a perfect relationship with God forever. And he will reign. Christ will reign, right? He's returning. And when he comes again, he's going to judge all wickedness, eradicate all evil once and for all, and we'll live with him for eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. A perfect place in perfect glorified resurrected bodies enjoying a perfect relationship with our God. Wow, what good news that will be, right? And it's all because of Christ. Father, Son, Spirit had the plan, and Christ is carrying it out now. Through his life and death, he, he gave um, 
He purchased redemption, and now through his spirit, he's, he's carrying out the, the plan of salvation. So I, I end where I began. Are you captivated by Christ? And if not, what, what, is, what, it, what is distracting you? What is it of the world that is, is seizing your affections? Not saying you can't ever have a hobby or an interest or keep up with sports or news or whatever. But what is it that is taking the first place in your heart where Christ should be? Whatever it is, by God's grace, let's cast that off today. Right? Let's cast that off and let's ask God for grace to, to daily, continually be captivated by Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your, your faithful and obedient servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but took on, made him, emptied himself of the, the glory he deserves and, and took on a human nature and the nature of a servant. And so, Lord Jesus, we praise you. We praise you for your sacrifice. And as the later uh, servant songs in Isaiah will, will detail, Isaiah 53, the, how you were pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, and how the chastisement that was upon you brought us peace. So, Lord Jesus, we praise you for your humble and loving sacrifice. And we praise you for your your victorious resurrection, and we praise you for your, your, your gentleness and your, your, that you're a compassionate King and Savior. And I pray that you would show that compassion now, that you would strengthen our faith, that if there's some here today who've never turned to you in repentance and faith, that you would powerfully and lovingly draw them to yourself. And for those of us, your people, who who we know that we have idols in our hearts. Oh, please help us to, to repent of that and to seek you first and to be captivated by you. Father, you know our weaknesses. You know that we live in this world that just clamors for our attention and you know the sin that remains in us. And yet you call us to walk by faith and not by sight. So please give us grace to set our minds and our hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the Father's right hand and not on things below. We know you are good and faithful to do this. And so please sanctify us for your glory and that we may increasingly display who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Will you stand, please, and we'll sing another song of worship.